As a sexual medicine expert, I interact with people every day who are confused, mystified, and often put off by the very idea that someone does not define themselves by the sex they were assigned at birth. Today, I'm speaking with Ray McDaniel, a non-binary therapist, certified sex therapist, and transgender diversity and inclusion educator. They are the author of Gender Magic, Live Shamelessly, Reclaim Your Joy, and Step Into Your Most Authentic Self. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized women's health expert. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Gender magic is not only a roadmap for individuals that don't neatly fit into a binary world, but also for those that want to support a child, a colleague, or loved one, or just want to understand the transgender non-binary world better. Ray McDaniel not only has extraordinary expertise and experience, but is also a talented writer. Gender magic is fascinating, it is joyful, and it will change you in a really good way. So welcome, Ray. Hi, thank you so much for having me. There's so much to love about your book, um, starting with you're a really wonderful storyteller, and it's great oh, fun to read. You. But Thank before so we get much. started, you're welcome. But before we get started, um, let's talk about language because it's okay. confusing. And even for people who really want to get it right, they often unintentionally get it wrong. So I'm just going to throw out some terms and just give us your quickie definition, starting with cisgender. Absolutely. Cisgender, that's C-I-S, simply means on the same side as. It's a Latin prefix. So what that means is that when you are born, the doctor generally says it's a boy or it's a girl. And if you're assigned, let's say, female at birth, for example, and you grow up and say, hey, that feels like it fits, I feel like a woman, then you are cisgender, meaning on the same side as the sex that you were assigned at birth. I don't know if you've ever talked to an obstetrician about what they say or what they do when a, when a baby is born and it's not clear what the sex is. And I obviously, you know, did obstetrics a long time ago and I did it at a time when everyone was not having ultrasounds and everyone was not having genetic screening and very often nobody knew what the sex was before the birth. So it was, there was this great anticipation. The baby comes out and they're just <laughs> waiting for me to yell. It's a, you know, and and you can imagine sometimes it, it wasn't clear. Um, yeah. There's what we call ambiguous genitalia, that it wasn't clearly one way or the other. And so, you know, my approach was just saying, it's a beautiful baby. You know, I love that. <laughs> but but what was also interesting is and we're going back some years. The approach then was if it wasn't clear, they assigned it girl always. Interesting. And you I know, didn't know why? That. Well, the reason, and this was, you know, we're getting a little history here, but we're the reason that they assigned it girl, and don't be offended. This isn't my phrase. This is what we were taught is it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole. Isn't that Meaning, wild? It's wild. <laughs> Meaning that if you have to surgically do something to make that baby fit neatly into a sex, it's always easier to make it a girl than a boy. Easier yeah. to dig a hole, then build a pole. Which is just a wild thing to think about. It really is. Which brings me to the next definition, binary. 
So I think you kind of nailed it there. <laughs> we typically think of gender and the sex that we're assigned at birth as being two binary boxes, male or female. And what we are learning, and as you just demonstrated, there is actually a very wide diversity of bodies, of what those bodies look like, of how those bodies function. And the more that we learn about it, the more we realize that sex and then the gender system that we've put on top of that is not neatly fitting into a binary. So binary just as a word means either or, choice A, choice B. Yeah. And what we're learning is that neither sex nor gender really fits squarely into a binary system. Which brings us to non-binary. So when someone <laughs> says they are non-binary, what are they saying? What do they mean? So someone saying they are non-binary, which I identify as non-binary, so I can use myself as an example, they are saying that the sex that they were assigned at birth doesn't feel like it fully reflects who they are, but neither do they identify with the other, quote unquote, sex, meaning I was assigned female at birth, I grew up, and male did not feel right, but female felt very limiting to me. So I identify outside of that typical binary model of male and female, somewhere squarely in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's different than, of course, transgender. It is and it isn't. So transgender is an umbrella term. Um, Non-binary fits underneath that. And here's the nuance here. Not everyone who identifies as non-binary resonates with the term transgender but it's still considered a umbrella term. Trans is also a Latin prefix. It means on the other side as. So let's say you were born, the doctor says, it's a girl. And you grow up and say, well, I don't feel like a woman. I feel like a man. That is their gender identity. And that means they are trans. So they are on the other side as what they were assigned at birth. And then there's transsexual, which is completely different. You know, it's interesting. Oh, it's not. So this is good. I'm learning too, because I always thought transsexual was different. Different people use that term in different ways. So yeah. transsexual used to be the term that people used for what we now call transgender. I think in some medical communities, which is probably where this is coming from, it still is often used to indicate that someone has gone through or wants to go through a medical transition. Mm -hmm. However, in generally the medical community now and the transgender population, that's not a term that is used a lot. Now, if yeah. that's a term that feels right to somebody, then great. But I would say transgender is usually a safer term to use that's going to be the most inclusive. What term would you use for a person who clearly identifies as male or female, but enjoys cross-dressing, but doesn't feel that they are the cross gender. Is there a terminology for that? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. Yeah. So cross-dressing often has a bit of a sexual component to it. Mm -hmm. If we think of the term in its traditional sense. So your gender can be anything. You can be transgender, non-binary, cisgender, and enjoy dressing as another gender and have that have a sexual component to it. On the other hand, if it's just somebody who wants to dress in a way that isn't 
isn't typical of the gender that they've been assigned or identify as. It just means that they're experiencing well, I look at that as gender expression. I think, that's, I think that's totally normal. Yeah. Oh, it totally is, right? Well, it's we all do normal. That all None the of this time. is abnormal. I mean, I think that's yes. the other piece of it too, is that in the psychiatry manuals years ago, all of these situations were really labeled as being some pathologic process. And that's part of what we're dealing with today is people still feeling like, oh, this is a problem. This is something that needs to be corrected. This is, you exactly. know, this is an illness as opposed to it's all on the spectrum of normal. It's just really understanding where someone is in their own identity. Finally, let's end with queer. Talk about the word queer. Yes. So I don't know how many of you listening grew up this way. I know I did of queer being a dirty word, right? I remember my grandmother using it as an insult to people before I even understood what it meant. So quick history lesson. Queer used to be and still is in some parts of the country used as a derogatory term for someone who is under the LGBTQ plus umbrella. However, in about the early to mid 90s, it was reclaimed by scholars and by the LGBTQ plus community and is used in much the same way that we use the term feminism. So as a you can be a feminist, right? You can identify as a feminist. You can also be a feminist scholar. You can read a book about feminism. You can take a college course. You can get a degree essentially in feminism. Queer is the same way. So I personally identify as queer. You can also go and take classes in queer theory or be a queer scholar. And to sum up an entire field of study in a couple of sentences, it essentially, <laughs> it essentially means that folks are questioning and throwing out a lot of the very binary boxes that we have been placed in as humans. So it's saying that the boxes that we are placed in are often confining and don't reflect our full human experience. And that just it's to be worth clear, because I'm, I'm actually a little confused. So yeah. if I'm someone that I identify as female, mm-hmm. and but I'm always wanting to learn more about other people and people that don't fit into the boxes. So does that make me queer, even though I identify as female, but I'm just trying to educate myself and learn more? There's some conversation about this yeah. <laughs> within the, the queer community, meaning folk who are under the LGBTQ umbrella. However, and I've been talking to a lot of my cisgender friends about this, queering is a verb, right? You can actively seek to understand, seek to tear down some of those boxes as an act of queering. However, whether or not that's a label that feels like it really fits you, I think it's a personal choice, but it typically refers to folks who identify somewhere under the LGBTQ. So I'm not queer, but I'm queering. Yes. And queering sounds like questioning. So yes. That's really exactly kind of all fits nicely together. All right. So in Gender Magic, you start with your story and I'm going to quote. I grew up in a small Louisiana town. When I was nine years old, my dad brought home a puppet and declared God called him to be a missionary. I was an odd and relatively isolated kid. So I joined him in his new hobby. While the other kids sang renditions of the chicks, there's your trouble in the middle school talent show. I walked on stage with a bird puppet. I was about as popular as you might imagine. 
First of all, you're very funny. And you've got to you know, read, of course, the book to get the rest of the story. But you go on to talk about your, your parents' response to your coming out to them as queer. And that mm-hmm. was not a good experience. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your experience, if you would, and then talk about how a parent ideally should respond when their child says, mm, I'm queer, I'm non-binary, whatever. So as you can imagine from that introduction, it did not go super well when I came <laughs> out to my very conservative Christian evangelical parents. They essentially, uh, well, they had kind of already cut me off, but we didn't talk for a long time. My dad threatened to get a restraining order against me when I came out as queer to them. And it's still not a great situation with my family and always something to continue to navigate. So that was my experience coming out. In your fantasy world, what would have (laughs) happened when you made this announcement to your parents? So I think one of the things that's the most important is that your child, no matter how old they are, is able to be authentically themselves. I think I'm not a parent, but I can imagine as a parent, that is what you want for your child. Everything else is details. So I want to ground us there. Responding with support and celebration is huge. Something like, thank you for telling me and trusting me. I love you for who you are and I'm proud of you. Yeah, I think often parents also have a fear response when a child comes out as queer or non-binary or trans because of the world we live in. It can be a scary place. That fear is not uh, something that really should be processed with your child, no matter how old they are. Yeah. We all know that the the world is a dangerous place for trans people. We don't need to be reminded of that. Trust me, we know. What we're missing is celebration and support of our identities. Basics go a really long way. Simply respecting your child's chosen name, their pronouns, and their identity goes an exceptionally long way in helping them feel supported. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the pronouns, but one of the things that popped into my head as you were talking is I grew up, I'm one of four kids and all of us, none of us are non-binary. We were all boring and straight and all that, but (laughs) but I had, I had wonderful parents, very loving, accepting kind of forward thinking parents. And I remember as a young child, relatively young, my mother saying to me, I really hope none of you are gay. And I said, Mm -hmm. why? And she said, oh, I would love you just the same. It wouldn't matter to me, but I know you would have a harder road in this world. And I don't want any of my my children to have hardship in the world. And at the time, I thought, that's kind of odd. But now as a parent, I understand what she was saying, that it wasn't about her love and acceptance. She would be fine with it and was letting us know that in advance just in case. And she actually had that discussion with all of us. But I only want easy things for my children. And I think and I think every parent, I was actually one of the first in Chicago. I used to do gender affirming surgery, performing hysterectomies on young adults who identified as men. And across the board, when on surgery day, they were always accompanied by their moms, almost Mm -hmm. never by their dads. And their moms, when I would always ask their story, and when did they realize that their child was different and not, you know, like all the other little boys and the other little girls, and they would always say, oh, I knew, I knew from the get go, you know, two, three, that there was something up. But my question for you is, 
is it just by chance that they weren't accompanied by their dads? Or do you find that moms are usually more accepting and supportive than men are? I don't think it's an accident that moms were usually the ones who showed up. Of course, it always depends on the parents, but I think it is more typical for moms to be supportive than it is for dads. And I think the difference in those typical levels of support are mostly around our culture. Mm -hmm. So cis men aren't generally given a lot of education about emotional intelligence. They're steeped, as all of us are, in misogyny and patriarchy and ideas about toxic masculinity that position any sort of femininity as a negative thing, yeah. as weak, as something to be you know, erased out of your child by whatever means necessary. And I think even when somebody does maybe want to be supportive and but they're they're having a hard time with it, that's what's coming up largely yeah. is all the messages we get about what does it what does masculinity mean? What does femininity mean? And how can we be more accepting of gender identities and gender expressions that are outside this norm of this is what it means to, to be a man? Yeah. Your experience aside, I, I imagine it has to be terrifying for a young person to come out to their parents. And I don't even know if you can make this sweeping generalization because every individual case is different, but do you find in general that parents are usually more accepting than their kid expects them to be? I think it completely depends on the parents, yeah. right? I think there is a lot more cultural conversation about transgender identities and non-binary identities, which bodes well. So I think more parents than ever are being supportive. Mm -hmm. However, you know, we know there are parts of the, the country and folks who are going to hold beliefs that it is unnatural or not okay for someone yeah. to identify as something other than the sex they were assigned at birth. And that's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, you're I'm sure you're right on that one. Let's let's return to talking about pronouns a little bit. Um, because I think that that that's confusing for people as well. If someone is in the non-binary trans uh, umbrella, what would make them choose to go with the they, them pronouns as opposed to the opposite gender that they were born as pronouns, the she, he pronouns? So first, I want to say that language is limited and it's always changing. You know, if you had asked any of us 10 years ago what TikTok meant, we would have a very different answer than we do today. We always learn new language and ways of, of speaking about people. So that's a very normal thing. At the moment, they, them is the best option that is understood culturally for a gender neutral singular pronoun. So for example, I use they, them pronouns, I identify as non-binary. He or she doesn't really feel like it fits me because those are binary options for pronouns. So they, them encompasses more of who I am. And so that is what feels like the most reflective of my identity. I have a hard time with they, them, not because I have any issue with the concept. I just wish that there had been different terminology chosen because I just find it's confusing. And it's been explained to me many times why... <laughs> 
you know, why the choice was to go with they, them. But I always reflect back to when I was your age and, and it was the idea that we don't want to be identified as Miss or Mrs. So we came up with a completely new term with Ms., which I, mm-hmm. I, you know, thought was great. And whenever I hear they, them, I think, well, why couldn't you think of a new term? Why do you have to use a term that's already in use and it's just going to confuse people? But what's done is done. So now we just have to get used to it. But I find myself, and I try and be very mindful, I try, I find myself slipping up with people mm-hmm. who go by they, them, and, and the she or he just slips out unintentionally. And then I always feel very badly about that. But part of it is because it is a little bit confusing. So I think I'm hoping that people in the they, them world will give people a hall pass when they're at least trying. All right, I want to go on to another topic. There's There's been a lot of articles in the news about parents who were upset because unbeknownst to them, their young child who identified as transgender or non-binary was using different pronouns at school, but the school didn't tell the parents. And then when the parents found out, they felt really angry that they had been cut out of that loop. What's your take on that? It is not an enviable position for the people at the school, because frankly, if a child is not coming out at home, there's usually a reason for it. And it might be physically unsafe. Uh, It might be dangerous. It could even be fatal for a child to be outed in a non-affirming home. That said, like I said earlier, there are a lot of parents who would be supportive if they were given the chance. I can see both sides, but safety of the child always has to be the priority. Yeah, no, and I agree, but it is a tough one because my daughters are older now, but, but certainly when they were little, you know, five, six, seven, if that was going on in school, I would have wanted to be included in that both to be supportive and just because I want to know, but again, they were not going to be in danger, you know, so it, right. it is, it exactly. is tricky and it is very individual. What is your advice to people who identify as non-binary, but have not come out to their parents? Is there a best way to break the news? And I assume texting is not recommended. What I tell people is to think through the journalist questions of who, what, when, where, and why. And that really helps people get a handle on what is the best way in this particular scenario to come out? I always recommend building your army before you fight the war, meaning that it's easier to typically come out to folks that you're close to already that you can reasonably assume are going to be supportive so that you have people in your corner for conversations that might be a little bit more difficult. You you said earlier, I texting is probably not recommended, probably not as a, a first line of how to come out, but I also always encourage people to really reflect on what do they need to feel safe coming out. So some people work better writing and they might want to write a letter. Some folks really want to do something in person. So it really depends, but I do typically put the onus on the person who is coming out to say, hey, this is what I need even if it's not the preferred way for the other person. So another thing I've done is if people write better and that just feels more safe, they know what they're going to say, that they write a letter and then they might read it out loud to their parents or family members. And that's one way to do it. I I think that approach and that advice, though, that's not just about this. That's about any difficult topic. I mean, you're a therapist, first and foremost, before you got into this world. And I would Mm -hmm. imagine there's a lot of difficult conversations that we have to have with 
people, parents, people, whatever. I'm a writer as I very often will do that before I have a conversation. I'll just kind of write out my thoughts and my bullet points so that I know that I'm being clear and it really helps sort it out in my own head as well. One of the best tips that I give folks is something that I call bookending. So bookending is essentially filling your cup before and then after a difficult conversation. So intentionally planning time with people you care about, that love you, that support you, doing things that feel good and recharging to you. And it it helps kind of contain whatever difficult conversation to that particular point so it doesn't drain you quite so much. It's kind of like the advice I give friends when they're going through a divorce. I always say the day you get divorced, make sure that you plan an evening event with people who you just love being with. It's a form of bookending of saying, okay, I got through this really difficult time and now I'm going to be around people who love me and support me. So again, lessons yes, to be learned exactly. for a lot of things in life, not not just this. In, in Gender Magic, you say gender is a galaxy. What do you mean by that? So if you think about galaxies, they are beautiful, mysterious. They're, they're infinite. We have no idea how many there are, millions, billions probably. But we don't think that we have to understand every single thing about them to appreciate them. And in fact, the more that we learn about space and galaxies, the more questions we have and the more we realize what we don't know. And I view gender the same way. So it is an ever expanding understanding of something that is often mysterious and kind of floaty for some people. It's also infinite. And instead of thinking of gender as binary options, male and female, we can think of gender as a space full of options, a space full of galaxies that have nuance that really resonate with that particular person and describes them for who they are in as big of language as they need. But the thing I love so much about that explanation is it also speaks to not only having this fluidity, if you will, but it's at that moment in time. And maybe at another moment in time, it will be different, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Our understanding of space, and in the book, I, I talk about Galileo and Galileo putting out the book that says, hey, yes, I believe that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. And he was almost excommunicated from the church who was put under house arrest for the rest of his life. If he hadn't recanted that, he probably would have been killed by the Inquisition. He could not prove in that moment that the earth revolved around the sun. There was not enough scientific instruments in order to prove that. But he knew that the way we understood the universe was too limited and was wrong, even though he couldn't prove that given the tools of the yeah. time. And now we know he was right. And it, it I think for, for most of us, hopefully, at least, it feels ridiculous to think of the earth as the center of our right. entire well, galaxy. It's affirming for how people think we're forward thinking, thinking about gender and sex. And and um, it's saying, okay, we are limited in what we know, and we are constantly learning new things and expanding our understanding. And exactly. that's actually what gender magic is about. You talk about fear of regret when someone's thinking about transitioning. 
And how often, I, mean, I don't know if there's good statistics on this, but how often does someone feel regret about their transition, keeping in mind that even if you stop hormone therapy, some changes are permanent, not to mention if someone chooses to have surgery, that's permanent. Yep. That's permanent. So how often is there regret and is it predictable? Such a good question and such a, a highly politicized topic. And I think whenever something gets highly politicized, it becomes very one dimensional. Uh, so I love bringing some nuance to this topic. One thing that is true just across the board is that transgender research is not super well funded and has not been historically super well funded. So there is a lack of- Why am I not surprised? <laughs> right, right. We shouldn't be. Uh, there's a, a lack of longitudinal studies, a lack of really broad studies. However, we do know some things. So what we know from the research that we have is that the rate for regret and then subsequently detransition, which often get squished together in these research studies, ranges from less than 1% to roughly 4%. So very, very low. And in fact, one of the largest studies that was done, it was a survey sent out to surgeons who do gender affirming surgeries. 49% of those surgeons had never encountered a patient who regretted their transition. And this study encompassed, I'm going to give you the exact number, which is 22,725 patients who received gender affirming surgeries. Out of that almost 23,000 patients, only 62 or 0.2% reported regret or expressed mm -hmm. a desire to detransition. And here's the important thing, which is the point I want to make out of those patients, so out of that 62 patients who experienced any sort of regret out of the 23,000, only 22 people out of 23,000 or 0.09% reported a change in gender identity as the reason they felt regret. So I think one of the things that's important to realize here is that when people are talking about regret or detransition in this population, we're most of the time, an overwhelming amount of the time, not talking about somebody who actually experiences a change in their gender identity, but rather living as a trans person or the outcome of a surgery was not what they wanted or expected. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't follow the literature like you do, but 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 certainly in, in what I come across, every single article that I've written is that suicide rates go down and general happiness goes up in in people that transition. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I found myself a few months ago, and this is rare for me because I'm usually pretty good at, at checking things out, but I found myself on this ultra right wing radio show getting interviewed and, and oh, this no. topic came up. I know it was not good, but... <laughs> Be that as it may, one of the things that the interviewer said to me was, well, you know, Johns Hopkins had one of the first programs on transgender and they stopped doing it because it was a big mistake. And and I said to him, um, and I don't know if you know about this history at all, but Johns Hopkins was one of the first to do gender affirming surgeries and they had a very robust program, which they did stop. They halted it. And the reason that they halted it wasn't because they thought that this was the people weren't sure that that was the wrong thing to do. They specifically halted it because their surgical complications were too high. 
They just mm-hmm. had not gotten to the state of the art yet. And that's why they stopped doing it. And this guy is sitting there on the radio saying, well, Johns Hopkins realized that they were making a big mistake. So they stopped doing that surgery. And when I pointed out to him, no, it was because of surgical complications and just, as you mentioned, dissatisfaction, particularly uh, people that were having uh, penis constructions. It's just, I mean, they didn't look good. And yeah. they had very, very high rates of complication, not just with infection, but uh, urinary tract issues. And what they found out is that people were far happier transitioning with, with just hormones and not having a surgical change because it, it wasn't helpful and they didn't need to have removal of a penis or construction of a penis to feel comfortable and happy. But that's the kind of stuff that's out there. There you go. I'm sure this, welcome to your world, right? I'm sure you come across these kind of misconceptions all the time. Um, I do indeed. (laughs) But I want to talk about name changes. Obviously, folks that transition very often change their name, which I totally understand. But sometimes someone will change their name even if they have the gender neutral name. Why is that? Well, names are meant to reflect who we are. And if a name doesn't feel like it reflects who we are, a lot of people, regardless of gender identity, gender, transgender alike, can legally change their name to whatever they want. Um, for example, in my book, I, I use my friend Bailey, who had a different name that she was given at birth, but just simply didn't like it. And she's not trans, she is a cisgender person, but started going by a different name in high school and eventually changed it legally because simply she liked it better. So I think people, especially parents at times, get very caught up in name changes. It feels like a personal affront if their child changes a name that they gave them. And I can understand a, a sense of loss about that. And at the end of the day, I want to go back to your child. The most important thing for your child is that they feel good in their own skin and authentic. And if that means they need to change their name, then that's okay. And it's ultimately not that big of a deal. People change their name for, for many, many reasons. Yeah. And again, a situation that is not limited to a non-binary population, but as you said, people just want to change their name and there's nothing wrong with it. Not to mention all the women that change their main name when they get married, just saying. I never did, by exactly. the way. I, I kept my 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 name. I felt like I worked very, very hard to get through medical school. And I got married um, the day I graduated from medical school. And I thought, I'm not taking his name. I worked really hard to be Dr. Stryker and I've never regretted it. The only problem I ever had because of it was with my ex late mother-in-law who, you know, kept calling me Mrs. So-and-so. And oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was that. And then, of course, my brother, who is a physician, and we happened to do our residency in the same hospital. And he would always say that I was ruining his social life because every woman he asked out would say, oh, no, I know you're married to Dr. Stryker. <laughs> And oh, he'd say, no. no, she's my sister. That didn't go well. But beyond that, I was I never regretted <laughs> not not changing my name. One of my very, very favorite lines in gender magic is, and I quote, solo sex isn't a consolation prize if we can't or don't want to have partnered sex. It's a different type of sexual experience that is valuable in and of itself. 
I would like that to be the mantra of my next book. I'm just saying you, and I'm, and I may use it Go in my orgasm it. book that I'm writing, but I will attribute it to you because I love it. And, and because it's true for everyone, but why is it particularly important with non-binary transgender folks to explore and get pleasure from their bodies on their own? So a lot of trans folks feel disconnected from their bodies as a result of gender dysphoria and also just the world that we live in, trauma. Trans doesn't exist in a, a vacuum. So we all have body stuff, typically, every human on earth today, I think. What is helpful about solo sex is that it reconnects you with your five senses. It is a mindful thing to do. And it's pleasurable. It's fun, right, to have solo sex. And so it also helps you feel alive. It recharges you. It helps you feel good in your skin, no matter what else is going on. I also think that pleasure is revolutionary, especially for folks who have marginalized bodies of any type, saying that I get to and deserve to experience pleasure in my body, no matter what else is happening, is, is pretty revolutionary. Yeah. So I think it's important. Thing, it's important, but but putting on your sex therapist hat for the moment, you know, when, when sex therapists, and you know, my daughter's a sex therapist, and we mm -hmm. talked a little bit about this when I had her on, a, on an episode, sex therapists very often talk about fantasy and, mm -hmm. and why fantasy is healthy and normal. And do you think that solo sex is an opportunity to hone those fantasy skills, if you will? Absolutely, it is. Right. You don't have to worry about anyone else in the room. You can just be in your head in the best way in fantasy, discover more of what you like, of what turns you on. And also at the same time, be exploring more about your body. And especially if you have changed your body in some way. So if you've been on hormone therapy or you've had any sort of medical intervention, you have to get to know your body again yeah, in a yeah. new way. And so, yes, I absolutely think it is so valuable as a tool for fantasy, discovering what you like, discovering or rediscovering your, your own body and pleasure. You know, I keep saying this, but I think one of the biggest surprises for me when I read Gender Magic is how for a cisgender world, these are just good lessons, good messages to get through life. And that's why I think every single human being should read this book, even if they're not curious about this world, because you'll learn so much about yourself and your own identity and how to relate to the world around you and your own sexuality. And it's one of the, the many reasons that, that I love, love this book. Do you think that every person who decides to transition, even if they're very comfortable in their decision, would benefit from therapy? Absolutely. The world that we live in is definitely not always friendly for transgender people. And I think it's always helpful, no matter what type of self-growth you're going for, to have a, a trusted professional to help you through it. I think, I think gender exploration and gender transition are just a part of self-growth. And any part of self-growth, it's useful to have somebody there walking that path with you. I'm, I'm always astounded when someone thinks it's okay to ask someone who's trans or non-binary what they do sexually. And this is actually a question that I get from medical students a lot when we're talking about this. And they'll say, yeah, but, but what do they do? What do they do? Like, how do they have sex? And I, 
I mean, talk about invasive and inappropriate, but do you ever get asked that? Or do you have clients who've been asked that? And how do you tell them to respond? Oh, yes. It, people feel very entitled to information, very personal information about trans people's bodies, about their sex lives. What I tell people is that the general rule of thumb is that if you weren't talking about it before you knew somebody was trans, you should not be talking about it after. So if you weren't talking about someone's genitals or sex life before, don't ask them about it now. For doctors, I generally talk about ethical curiosity, which is a term my friend Lucy Fielding wrote about in her book, Trans Sex, and critically asking yourself, why are you asking this question? Is it actually relevant for the information that you need to treat this patient yeah. in front of you? But, you know, that's something that I talk about all the time. Any question that we ask a, a patient, why are we asking? If I ask someone if they have penetrative sex with a, a toy or a penis, I am asking because I want to know, number one, is there any pain associated with that? And number mm -hmm. two, if there's someone with a vagina who's having sex with a penis, I want to know, do they need contraception? Do they need STI screening? But exactly to your point, you don't ask because you're curious. You ask because it's going to change something you might advise them as a physician. You know, so often people will just ask inappropriate questions in general because people do that. And so many people feel like, well, they asked me, I need to answer. And I think we need to get in the habit to comfortably say, why do you ask? I mean, to me, that's the best response to someone who gets asked an inappropriate question is turn it back. Why yeah. do you ask? Oh, because I want to know. Why do you want to know? Well, I'm curious. Why are you curious? And you do that enough and maybe they'll get the idea. But that's that's always my approach because in my world, when it would come up a lot, talk about inappropriate questions, is very often women are asked, are you trying to get pregnant? It is just beyond inappropriate for all the obvious reasons. And I would just say, you know, especially if it was someone, maybe they chose not to and that's their business, or maybe they'd been trying and had fertility problems, or maybe they just had their sixth miscarriage. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why that question should not be asked. And I would just tell people, look, anyone that asks, that's what you say. Why do you ask? Why are you I curious? I love that response. But if you don't want to be confrontational and snarky, that's kind of a way to work around it. It's just to smile pleasantly and say, oh, why do you ask? Why do you want to know? I'd right, like to talk a little bit about you personally in the in the time we have left here, because you're you're not just a therapist and an author. You have a life, right? And yes. and I was reading about you, and I saw that you do burlesque. Really, talk about yeah. that. So I, I used to do a lot of burlesque. I'm not as active now, but I took classes for many years. I performed in one of the bigger troops in Chicago for a while and loved it. So I actually got introduced to it through improv, which I did when I first moved to Chicago to meet people and then just fell in love with the art form and the community and met some of my very best friends in those classes, ended up in a troupe with some of my very best friends. And it, it just teaches you so many sneaky life lessons. You know, I remember our teacher, uh, Michelle Amore, telling us eyes up all the time. I think anybody who's been in a dance class can probably relate. This idea of stop looking at your feet and you know, put your chin up, look up and right. own whatever you're doing on stage. 
you know, if you have a costume failure, if you forget your choreography, it doesn't matter as long as you are owning it and looking like you're having fun. Um, have you ever been on Michelle Lemore's podcast? Not yet. I have. I was Ooh, a guest you beat on me Michelle. To it. Yeah. So <laughs> I, it's called Down There, I'm pretty sure. And Amazing. Michelle, I've I've known Michelle Lemore for many, many years. We we actually met because we were both guests on the same radio show. It was right when my book Sex Rx came out. And the person who was interviewing us thought it would be fun to have someone who is sexy and does burlesque talk to a sexual medicine expert. And I kind of went with it, even though I thought, well, I don't know. It was such a great, great show. We had so much fun that we've stayed in touch since then. And she asked me to be a guest on her podcast not too long ago. And That's we, so had, exciting. we had the best conversation. And if you don't follow Michelle Lamour on Instagram, you should because I adore her. I adore her entire approach to owning your body, loving your body, and showing it in, in many beautiful, beautiful ways. I mean, she really celebrates the human body. And I love that she does that. And she's just so smart and so interesting. But I also appreciate what you're talking about. Don't look down at your feet because another little known fact about me personally is I never wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a ballerina. And aside from the fact that I had no talent and don't have a ballerina's body, but I did spend many, many years of my life in, in ballet class. In fact, up until a very, very short time ago, I'd always took ballet all through medical school wow. as an adult. And so the don't look at your Love feet that. thing was a, a good lesson for, for life as well. You put your chin up, you own the room and it, you, you learn confidence. I think a lot of people who are not confident think that that's something that comes naturally and not necessarily. You, you have to learn to be confident by, feeling good about yourself and it is a muscle are. it's a muscle and that's what i'm hearing from you is that burlesque was one of those steps that helped you feel confident about who you are absolutely and it also it, it's so body positive it's so sex positive and you get to practice it's this really interesting holding of extreme vulnerability right you're getting mostly naked on stage while dancing in front of other humans that's vulnerable <laughs> talk uh, about vulnerable that is the yeah, most vulnerable <laughs> it's so vulnerable but it's something that you fully control that you are choosing to do because you find it fun because you want to do it and that is such a muscle and such a practice. But let me ask you this, because correct me if I'm wrong, but but you did burlesque before you transitioned, correct? I did, yes. Yeah. So at that point, you talked about not feeling comfortable in your body, not feeling comfortable mm -hmm. in your skin, yet you did burlesque, which is the ultimate in terms of exposing your body and what you look like at that moment in time. And yet that was empowering for you. How do you think it that was. was? Why? Now, different trans folks and non-binary folks have different experiences in their body. My experience was never one where I hated my body or my femininity. It just felt too confining to me. So celebrating my body, celebrating my femininity at the time, it didn't feel dysphoric to me. It did feel empowering. I think now, now that I've had top surgery and I've transitioned, 
if I went back to it, we've thought about taking some classes again. I think my presentation and how I do burlesque and how I move my body would probably look slightly different, but it didn't feel negative in any way for me to embrace my femininity and still does it. It just looks different now when I embrace my, my feminine parts of myself. That makes perfect sense. Anything I did not ask you that you would like to share or you would like to talk about? You know, we've had such an amazing conversation today that I don't have a ton to add except this idea, which is that gender freedom, which is the the point of my book, Gender Magic, is for everyone. Because we have all, no matter what your identity is, been stuffed into a tiny box of what it means to be the sex that we were assigned at birth. And for some folks, that matches up perfectly. And for some folks, it doesn't. But I think it's worth asking ourselves, everybody, are we showing up in the world and presenting ourselves in a way that feels the most authentic, the most lit up, the most like who we truly are, because that is gender freedom. And that is the entire point of what I do, which is to create more freedom and more possibility for people just to feel good in their skin. And thank you. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for writing this book. The The last thing I want to add before we close is, is one of the things I did not talk about that I want to mention is, is the tone of your book. It's not angry. It's not accusing. It's all about, as you say, and I quote, the joy of creative expression, pleasure in all of its forms and celebrating each other. I really love that. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do and um, and for being you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. This was fantastic. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Sometimes I feel blue